Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you uh, this evening. Good evening, welcome. If you're new here, a uh, special warm welcome. It's so great that you're here. Uh, welcome if you're watching online as well. Uh, uh, tonight I'm speaking about the topic of persecution. And we are continuing our series through the book of Acts. Now, we're going through the whole of Acts. Uh, we call it Faith in Action. It's a little bit of play on words. Um, some people get that, some people don't. But um, if, you, if you're not with the puns, uh, don't worry. And tonight, I'm talking about how can we face persecution? How can we deal with persecution? Now, uh, the word persecution and the topic of persecution is a massive, massive topic. Um, and we're going to only scratch the surface of it tonight. But I'm hoping that what I share tonight will get us thinking, get you thinking about how you can uh, live lives of faith in action, lives out in the world, uh, living out our faith. And persecution can essentially be defined as this, uh, receiving unfair or cruel treatment or suffering in some way for being a believer or having a public witness to a belief in faith. And tonight, I'd love us just to um, take this topic and uh, apply it to ourselves, learn from what the, the passage in Acts 4 says, look at persecution around the world uh, for our brothers and sisters, Christians around the world, and then think about what it is to live a distinctive life, a life sold out for Jesus in the world today. So three different lenses, uh, then looking at Acts, uh, now looking around the world, and future for us. How do we live lives that are distinct and not bland? And um, I'm not, I haven't been chosen to speak on this topic because I'm an expert. Um, I'm not an expert. I've not lived in an area of the world where I've received persecution. Uh, in fact, I could probably say the, 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 one of the moments of persecution in my life that I remember was as a kid. And I grew up um, uh, down in Devon, actually, and my dad was a church pastor. And every now and again, my dad as a church pastor would... Um, not email, because it wasn't probably the thing then. Uh, he would probably call the head teacher and say, hello, I'm a local church pastor. I'd love to come and do the assembly at, uh, at, the, at the school. And me and my brother were there, and um, every now and again, my dad would come and do the assembly. And that, for us, was like the most embarrassing thing. And um, I, I remember, I remember the, you know, the, the Monday morning that when we were sat, doing, sat for the assembly in lines, and, um, and suddenly the head teacher would stand up and say, this morning we're really pleased that... Um, Local Reverend, Reverend Southcombe is going to come and do the, the, the assembly. And I was like, oh, no, it's that week where he's signed up to do the assembly again. Anyway, uh, that, that for me was a moment of, uh, then, you know, the teasing started in the playground, that sort of stuff. Your dad's a bit and, then, um, and then the same thing happened when I got to secondary school. My dad thought it would be a great idea. Sorry, Dad, if you're watching. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> the same thing happened in secondary school where he decided uh, to get in touch with the head teacher again and say, I'd love to come and do an assembly at this school. And me and my brother were like, oh, no, not again, it's happening again. Anyway, um, I realized that my experience of persecution pales into insignificance compared to uh, what many, many millions of Christians face around the world today. So I make light of it, but I realize it's a massive topic. And today, um, I stand here as someone who hasn't experienced persecution on the level that many, many do. But what I do have is a heart for my brothers and sisters around the world. A heart that when one part suffers, as the Bible says, we all suffer. And a heart where we stand together in solidarity. And it's our, it's our um, delight to stand together and say, I'm standing with you. I'm standing in solidarity with you. So tonight, we are living, think about living distinctive lives for Jesus. And as I said, um, we're going to look at persecution then, now, and in the future. So we're going to dive into Acts chapter 4. And I'm going to frame uh, this talk around um, persecution then. And what we have here at the beginning of Acts chapter 4 is like the aftermath 
of an amazing moment of healing in the temple. If you look at Acts chapter 3, there's, an, there's a moment where uh, a man has been disabled for his whole life. He's been excluded from the temple. He's probably been ostracized from society. And the believers, Peter and John, are there, and they pray for him, and he's healed. He's had 40 years of being lame, of not being able to work, of not being able to worship in the temple, totally cut off from society. Suddenly he's, he's healed and he's restored and he's able to, to join in with what's going on. His life, he's able probably to get a job and work and contribute to society. So he is jumping around and worshiping Jesus. He is totally going for it. And looking further back even to um, Acts chapter 2, when we see the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, these are the believers of, that have been around Jesus. They've seen him uh, die and resurrected, and they've seen his uh, resurrected body. They've seen him go off to heaven, and they start doing amazing, amazing things, signs and wonders, healings, speaking, thousands coming to faith. And probably the first moment of persecution that they faced, if you look back at that day of Pentecost, was when... Uh, the people in, in Jerusalem said, I don't believe what you're saying. You've had too much wine. You're drunk. That was probably like their first little moment of verbal teasing, where, where the people listening to them, speaking in different languages, didn't believe that what they were saying was, was true or right. It's like they've had too much wine. They're talking nonsense. And suddenly here, when this healing has happened outside the temple, they are receiving probably the first moment of threat of arrest from the priests in the temple. Suddenly they're thinking, oh my goodness, we're not just going to get teased, we might actually get arrested and thrown into prison. And uh, we see throughout the whole of the book of Acts, whenever the disciples are doing amazing things, signs and wonders, preaching to thousands, thousands coming to faith, we see uh, both the, uh, the temple guards, the temple priests, all the religious leaders getting really, really furious because Jesus was totally changing what was going on. He was, he was bringing a new way of worship. But not only that, there was, a, there was a religious stir going on, but there was also a bit of a political stir going on. So the Roman guards were also, and the Roman officers were also really, really furious with what's going on. We'll come back to that in a minute. So the priests, the Sadducees, ruled the temple. They controlled the temple in Jerusalem. And you think back to the Easter story, and you remember, actually, this is probably only a few weeks after uh, the death, the crucifixion, uh, and the resurrection of Jesus. Not, not years later. This is probably just weeks later. And that, that would have all been fresh in the memory of everyone in Jerusalem. Caiaphas, the great high priest, the, the Sadducee who led the whole temple, was probably thinking, do you know what? I've, I've dealt with Jesus, dealt with him, put him to death. Yeah, he might have resurrected, but we don't really, we're not really sure who that was. That's probably just fake news, you know, all that sort of stuff. And um, they probably thought it was that he'd done what he needed to do to quash this um, guy from Galilee, this Jesus who was spreading the good news, who was saying he was the Messiah, who was allegedly rose from the dead. And suddenly, Caiaphas and the high priest are faced with uh, Peter and John, two guys who were around Jesus for a few years. They were, they, they're hearing all these stories of, hang on, they're outside the temple? They're doing the teaching for us? What's going on? And Jesus is essentially saying, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. I'm the way to God. You don't have to go into the temple. You don't have to go through the washing thing. You don't have to go into the Holy of Holies. You don't need the high priest to get you into the special area. You just need to trust what I say. And Peter and John are saying, believe what Jesus said. He came back to life. We saw him. He is the Messiah. He is the one you need, the way to God. So the, you can understand that the, 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 the family of priests, and it calls them a family in that passage, are furious because almost they're out of a job. 
They've been doing this for years. They've been controlling the temple really strong in society. And suddenly, um, the, 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 the apostles, Peter and John, are saying, do you know what? Um, Jesus, his body was broken. The way to God is, is there and available. So you can understand why they, would, why they would want to silence what was going on and put them in prison. Secondly, then, the Romans. So there was, a, there was a religious stir going on. There was also a political stir going on at this very moment. The Romans were occupying the whole land. The Romans were the guys in charge of this area. Geographically, they'd taken the land. And what the early disciples started saying is these three words, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Really simple words that we probably hear quite a lot and we say, and we probably don't think much about them uh, in the same way as what was going on in AD 33 in Jerusalem. Because when the disciples and the early church were saying, Jesus is Lord, they were, this was essentially a bit of a political subversion because the Romans and the Roman citizens believed that Caesar was Lord. They would say Caesar is Lord. They would worship Caesar and the Roman emperor almost like a god, a god in human form. And suddenly this early church was saying, Jesus is Lord. And by that they were inferring, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. We answer to a higher authority is what they were saying. So you could understand why the Roman guards and the Roman officers would suddenly think, oh my goodness, there's a, there's a political stirring, there's a revolution on our hands here. If they're saying Jesus is Lord, this, this man from Galilee, he, is he Lord? Caesar is not. They were, would have been really worried about what was going on politically. So you've got two different dimensions going on here. Uh, the spiritual, the priests, and the political, and all the Roman guards. And Jesus speaks into this. Um, and interestingly, the Romans sort of picked up all these different rumors of what was going on. You think of Jesus at the Last Supper where he says, remember me by bread and wine. This is my body. This is my blood. Um, do this as often as you drink it and eat it uh, as a way to remember the death of, and, the, and the crucifixion of Jesus. And this obviously continued in the first days of the church. And the rumors spread that the early Christians were actually cannibals. They thought, the Romans thought that they were actually drinking blood, actually eating flesh. And they were like, these Christians are odd. They're actually cannibals. And um, another interesting thing, and, and, and a weird thing that went round, was uh, a depiction that looked like this. I'm going to look at the screen here, because this is some Roman graffiti from the first century. This is Roman graffiti that was scribbled on a school in Rome. Now, you won't, sort of, you won't see this sort of graffiti around Bristol, I doubt. Um, this, is, this is first century street art. And this essentially depicts a guy called Alexamenos. Alexamenos is the guy that's holding his hand up like this, and he is in worship, and he's worshipping, as you can see really carefully, he's worshipping a figure here who is half human with a donkey's head on a cross. And this was a really offensive piece of graffiti to the early church. This was basically saying, and the, the, the schoolboy Latin there is Alexamenos Chibete Theon. I'm not sure if I've said that right, but I said it convincingly. Um, Alexamenos Chibete Theon, which is basically saying Alexamenos worships God. And the God that's depicted is half man, half donkey, the head of a donkey. And it was basically a sort of insult to the early Christians, the early church, saying, you worship this weird donkey thing. And you might be thinking, why the donkey? Well, think back to um, the Palm Sunday moment where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. They've got the thing mixed up between, um, is Jesus, who is Jesus, um, and why did he come? And, and the reason Jesus came on a donkey, obviously, was uh, because it was prophesied that your Savior will come riding on a donkey. So the Romans were sort of taunting the early Christians, saying, you worship a donkey god, what's going on? Anyway... <laughs> 
The reason I'm telling you all of this is because today, 2,000 years later, the same situation is happening. That Christianity is provoking both religious powers around the world and political powers around the world. The same thing is happening today around the world. That Christianity, the claim of Christianity, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to die and was raised from the dead and ascended to give us forgiveness from sins, promise of a life now, promise of a life to come, is the same provocative message uh, today that we hold on to as church. So, that brings us on to persecution now, today around the world. And many of you will know that there are um, churches around the world that meet in fear. We have the, the, the privilege of meeting here in this place in freedom, without restriction, uh, although we are restricted by COVID, but we're not restricted in, in who can come and who can't come. And yet, it's estimated around the world that 345 million Christians face the risk of persecution around the world, either from political regimes or religious uh, other religious powers. In fact, Christians are the number one persecuted people group around the world on earth. No, no one else is more persecuted as a human uh, organization or belief than Christians. And it's thought around the world that every two hours a Christian is killed for following Jesus. Every two hours. And many of you will hear, um, you hear on the news often about um, people fleeing Iraq and Syria, refugees fleeing across um, North Africa and through the Mediterranean. It's thought that of those refugees, 58% of them are Christians, and they're fleeing because of their Christian faith. And um, I have followed many year, for many years the work of Open Doors, which is a Christian organization that supports uh, believers in other countries and church leaders and churches. Um, and I thought instead of counting all the stats in the different countries, uh, they have something called the Top 10 Watch List, which just keeps uh, the global church informed about what's going on in the struggling, uh, most persecuted areas. So we're going to watch just for a few minutes uh, this to give you an idea, because if we lose track of these things, sometimes we forget uh, the countries where um, Christians are persecuted the most. So let's watch this for a few minutes. What if your church had to meet in secret? What if spies watched your every move? What if following Jesus meant you faced violence or even death? Millions of Christians around the world experience these kinds of challenges every day. And these are the top 10 countries where faith costs the most. Number 10, India. Hindu extremists want to rid India of Christians and they are prepared to use extreme violence to achieve their goal. At number nine, Nigeria, where more Christians are murdered for their faith than in any other country in the world. Iran is at number eight. Secret house churches risk being raided by the police. If caught, be prepared for a long prison sentence. Number seven, Yemen, a war-torn country where Christians, if discovered, face the death penalty. Eritrea is at number six. If your faith is discovered, you can be imprisoned without trial in appalling conditions. Often, your loved ones don't even know if you're still alive. Number five, Pakistan. Say the wrong thing in Pakistan and the notorious blasphemy laws could see you accused of insulting Islam and sentenced to death. At number four is Libya. 
a lawless land with no freedom of speech or belief. Somalia is number three on the list. Somali Christians can't reveal their faith to anyone or they could be killed, even by their own families. Number two is Afghanistan. If they find out you're a Christian, you have a stark choice. Flee the country or be killed. And at number one, North Korea, the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian. Informants are everywhere. Discovery means death, either by execution or by being worked to death in a labor camp. At least 340 million Christians around the world experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. What if you could help them? For 65 years, Open Doors has stood alongside the persecuted church, strengthening Christians who dare to follow Jesus, no matter the cost. Your prayers and gifts enable our underground networks to reach millions of Christians with emergency food and aid, spiritual care, smuggled Bibles and Christian books, training and legal advice. But more than that, your support means that persecuted Christians know that they are not forgotten, not alone. After all, these are not strangers and they are not statistics. They are our brothers and sisters and they need our help. heartbreaking stories and some of those places will be familiar to you and some uh, I didn't uh, realize what was going on uh, but we must pray we must stand with our brothers and sisters in solidarity now the picture might seem bleak and that, and that does paint a bit of a bleak picture but there's also been great news in recent times uh, the country of Sudan for example where for, for many many years uh, Christians have faced persecution in the last year 2020 was a great year because there was a new transitional government in Sudan where um, the, the death penalty for Christians was removed, uh, where the um, official religion of Islam was sort of removed as well. And in fact, Muslim and Christian leaders have worked together to create an agreement uh, for religious freedom, to promote religious freedom in Sudan. Uh, Muslim leaders and Christian leaders working together. Incredible stories. Um, and Sri Lanka, you think back to the Easter Day bombings that we heard about in 2019, uh, where a church was bombed on Easter Day, 250 people lost their lives. Since then... Uh, the church has worked together and has been supported by um, Christians around the world. And there, there's been a dramatic, dramatic drop in violence against Christians since that moment because of prayer, because of uh, commitments to working uh, for a better world. So Sri Lanka has dropped off the top 50, having been in the, uh, one of the most persecuted churches for many, many years. So if you'd love to find out more um, about how um, we can be involved um, in global Christianity, uh, do head to Open Doors website. It's an amazing uh, resource just to see videos like that and uh, profiles of different pastors. Uh, so I encourage you to go there. So we've done persecution then in Acts, persecution now in the, around the world today, and then persecution in the future, persecution um, around maybe closer to home in our lives as well. Today here in 21st century Britain, in Bristol. We live in a country that is, uh, has freedom of speech, freedom, uh, religious freedom as well. We can um, think what we want and believe what we want. And essentially the freedoms that we enjoy in our culture and society of today is because our country is founded on Christian principles, on, on the message of Jesus. And, um, but we have seen over the last 50 years, I think, the rise of sort of post-modernity 
the rise of what um, might be sort of a post-truth world that we've, we've come across in more recent times. Um, fake news, post-truth. Uh, almost people describe uh, our society these days as post-Christian. I think we once were a Christian society. Now it's not the prevailing religion or thought. And we live in a world where freedom of speech has, has gone so far to say, you believe what you want, I believe what I want. Let's not sort of talk about it too much, let's not disagree. If you don't want to do something that feels good, fine, I'll do something that feels good, and that's okay unless we uh, clash or whatever, and then it becomes a problem. And I think essentially um, we have replaced God with ourselves. And then to become a distinct Christian in this world can feel like we're going against the tide. When I first came into this building, probably about four years ago, uh, just outside the building, um, by the entrance, there's a brick wall, as you see it, you go out. And the first time that we came here, I looked at the brick wall, and on the brick wall was this graffiti, and it said this. No gods, no masters. It's not there anymore. It's gone. Uh, it wasn't a Banksy. And it's just, it was just someone who one day was stood outside a church and wrote, no gods, no masters. I thought, that's fascinating. Here we are about to reopen a church, replant a church uh, in the middle of Bristol, and there's someone that's decided to write, no gods, no masters outside. And I think our culture today has basically said, there is no God because I am God. I have no master because I'm my own master. And then for us to say, do you know what? We follow a higher power. We follow the, the kingdom of God. We believe that Jesus is our master. We're standing against some of the prevailing thoughts today. And that can make it really hard for us to live and to speak kingdom values, kingdom ways, gospel ways, the way of Jesus in our world, in our workplace, in our home, in our families. And I don't know about you, but I also have a bit of a thing, and my, one of my bugbears is poor representations of Christians in the media, in TV programs, in films, uh, looking at newspaper articles. Quite often, you look at the portrayal of church or vicars or believers of Christians, either uh, that they're sort of sandal and sock wearing or slightly odd. Um, you know, you look at vicars on EastEnders, you know, that, that every night and again, and when I see sort of poor and odd depictions of Christians and churches, I think there's so much more that you're not capturing here. You're just going at sort of stereotyping Christians in a certain way. And that, for me, is really, really painful. And um, what we are called to is... To, be a, a, to live a distinctive life. We're not called to be odd. We're not called to be, um, you know, that, that step, fit into that stereotype. But we are called to be distinct, to stand up for what is kingdom-focused, for what is Jesus-focused. Say, we do have a master. We do have a God. His name is Jesus. We follow him because his way is the way to live. So being a Christian should make you distinct and not odd. Turn to the person next to you and say, be distinct don't be odd. Just turn to that person. It's quite useful to remind yourselves. <laughs> it's good to remind ourselves of these things. Well done. Brilliant. So finally then, three things today to remember and three things to do as we think about what it is to face persecution. As we put our faith into action, I'd love to draw um, my last three things on this uh, line from Jesus that he uses when he's speaking to his disciples, telling them who he is. He says this, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. That is what Jesus came to show us, the way to God, the truth, and that we have life in all its fullness. So firstly this, follow 
the way. Follow the way. Interestingly, the, the earlier uh, Christians in the early church didn't call themselves Christians. Christian was probably a bit of a, another derogatory term given to the, the crazy early Christians by the Romans, maybe. They, they, called, them, they called them mini-Christs or followers of the Jesus party, if it was some sort of um, political party. They actually called themselves followers of the way. So follow the way is an instruction for us. They met in homes, they shared meals together, they broke bread, they supported one another in prayer, and we continue to do the same today. We continue to meet, not only on Sundays, but share our lives together in our homes, uh, in groups. And um, interestingly, in verse 13 of this passage, where we see Peter and John speaking, um, the religious leaders and the people that were trying to shut them up and say, don't speak about this, don't talk about this Jesus of Nazareth who's been resurrected from the dead, they said this, they were astonished that they were unschooled and religious, uh, unschooled and ordinary men. And it said this, but they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. An encounter with Jesus from these guys, for the disciples and the early church, an encounter with the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus changed their lives from that moment on. And they were followers of the way. And one of the most amazing moments as you look into the, the book of Acts, and we'll probably get onto this in a few weeks, is the conversion of Saul who became Paul. Probably the most dramatic conversion in church history. Here was a guy who was like totally, um, totally against what Jesus was preaching, totally against what the early church was saying. Suddenly encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, has his life totally turned around, becomes a follower of the way, the most uh, persecuting person becomes the person that spreads the message of Jesus around the Mediterranean, plants churches, encourages church leaders, sees incredible growth uh, through the next 50 years. And by following the way, as Paul did, as the disciples did, and as we do, it, it acknowledges that there is a road laid out for us. There is a way to live, like, roads that, like Paul's road to Damascus. He was led along the road by Jesus. And that as we face hard times, and our brothers and sisters face hard times around us, uh, we know that, that, that he has gone before us, that Jesus is with us in our persecution. So, firstly, know the way. Secondly, speak the truth. And what I love here about uh, this passage where Peter and John are essentially talking to people arriving at the temple, they're saying, look what God has done. He's healed this lame man. He's healed this guy who was on his bed for 40 years. Well, I've, I've seen the resurrected Jesus. I know, I, I've seen that he is real. And they're arrested and told not to speak anymore. But they can't help but keep speaking the truth. They're told twice in that passage to be quiet. Stop speaking, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but, yeah, but. Kept, kept saying loads of stuff. And uh, what was amazing about this is that the, the authority, in, in face of arrest, I think many of us would have um, just thought, okay, I should probably be quiet. But actually it says filled with the Holy Spirit. They kept speaking. They gave their defense. They kept saying, yeah, but have you seen what God has done? Have you seen this? Have you seen this man's story? We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard, they say in verse 20. We cannot help but speak. And they'd seen so many amazing things, and they were filled with the Spirit. And I think that gives us hope for our own lives of faith, our faith in action as well. Because sometimes um, when we don't know what to say, and often I don't know what to say to some people who are saying, why, why, did you, why did you become a vicar and start working for church? I need to ask the Holy Spirit to fill me and, and speak through me. Ask 
the Holy Spirit to speak through you. And the other thing I'd say with that is that these guys, Peter and John, were essentially telling uh, the, the, the temple priests the story of this man. His testimony was he'd been uh, disabled for 40 years and now he was uh, able to work and worship and jump around. That was his testimony. Each of us have our own testimony as well to share. Each of us has uh, a way in which God has impacted our lives and worked in our lives and done amazing things. And no one can argue with your testimony. That is your story. That is your um, personal testimony of what is going on and what has gone on in your life. So speak your testimony and speak the truth to those around you. And do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then lastly is this. Live the life. Live the life. I mentioned that the early church were called followers of the way. Well, actually, they were probably also called followers of the life as well. Um, that the people saw that they had life and energy and vibrancy and they were spirit-filled. They, people around them in Jerusalem and, and the Mediterranean saw that things were different about them. That they lived with a freedom and a lightness and a life about them, which is the Holy Spirit living in them. And there's a brilliant moment in Acts chapter 5 where the apostles again are put in prison. And you see loads and loads of times where they are imprisoned. And in this moment, an angel breaks them out from the prison. You can read this in Acts chapter 5. And the angel says to them, go and stand in the temple courts and tell the people about this new life. Go and tell people about this new life. So for us as well, we are called to go and live the life. But quite often in the world, we hear these words. Live your best life, don't we? Hear those? Live your, live your best life. Now, living your best life is great. Living your best life is, is, is wonderful. But how much better is living the life that Jesus has called us to? Because his ways uh, to know his plans for our lives when we're unsure about plans, to know his power in our lives when we're feeling weak, is the way to live. To live the life that Jesus has called us to. Uh, to know him and to make him known. So, those three things. I, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. Our job is to follow the way, to speak the truth in the power of the Holy Spirit, and to live the life that he has called us to. And when we do that, our faith is in action, our faith is alive. We become distinct. We don't become odd. We become distinct. The world sits up and sees that there's something different about us, that we have freedom and life and something to say in how to treat each other. That we are not our own gods, we are not our own masters, but we answer to a higher authority. And when we do that, we will see our faith come alive, the church come alive, because we believe that Jesus is alive and with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Great, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Um, why don't we stand and we're going to pray, and then Mao and the band are going to lead us in worship. So much there to take in, and... Uh, I'm just going to pray briefly. And there might be things that you're thinking uh, already, just, God, would you stir that in me? You've been speaking right now. So we just want to pray quickly, and then we're going to focus on worship. So Jesus, we thank you that you are the way and the truth and the life. And tonight, Jesus, we want to stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters worldwide. We want to stand with those who are suffering, who are persecuted, because they declare you, Jesus, as Lord. And Lord, we want to ask for your strength for them. We want to ask for your provision for them, your power to live in them by the Holy Spirit. Lord, would you strengthen and encourage Christians all around the world right now? 
as we stand with them. And Lord, help us too to be followers of the way, distinctive, living distinctive lives that show a different way, that show, God, that we follow you, that it's your kingdom we're following and not our own selfish agenda. So as we worship you now, we pray that you would speak to us and move.